Amen. Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reasons for that are super simple. Uh, We believe that God uses his word, his scriptures, the Bible, whatever title you want to give to it. Uh, We believe that he uses his word to uh, do all kinds of super important things, but chief among those important things is to reveal himself to his people. The unapologetic mission of this church is that we want you to know God, full stop. We want you to know him, to be shaped by him, to revolve your life around him, uh, see the world through him. And if the Bible is the primary way that he does that in you, we want to get your nose in a Bible as often as possible around here. So if you don't have the Bible outside of this place, take that little blue one or white one home and uh, we'll call it a win. Uh, We are in the middle, and I mean the middle, of a very long series uh, where we're walking line by line through the book of Romans. We're calling the series just and justifier. Uh, the reason for that is real simple. We, uh, uh, God uses those titles for himself, the just and the justifier. Um, he uses those titles for himself in chapter 3 of Romans, and it's just wise to call things what God calls things, and so uh, that's how we landed there. Uh, essentially, Romans, though, is a massive logical argument from beginning to end for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up uh, people, his people, to take that gospel to the nations. Paul and uh, Others, all right? And so being in the middle can feel kind of weird. Um, you're not exactly sure uh, where things are going to end yet. Uh, maybe you've, you haven't been here for the whole thing, and so you're not exactly sure where we've been. And so things can feel a little muddy. Uh, but basically, we've talked an awful lot about our desperate need for a Savior and how Jesus steps in to be that Savior, right? We talked about the law, God's commands, the Ten Commandments in shorthand, right? We talked about the law and how how we as sinners relate to them. And when we talked an awful lot about about dying to that law and being freed from that law and our old sinful selves in in order to pursue the righteousness that Jesus has already declared that we own. That's the stuff that we talked about. And then a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, JB got up here on this stage and he walked us through the very first part of Romans chapter 8. I don't know if we were here, uh, but, but because of Jesus' righteousness, gifted, given, accredited to us, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a verse. For some of you, it's your favorite verse ever. No condemnation for those who are his. And then when he got to verses 9 through 11, JB showed us that that those who belong to Jesus are not in the flesh anymore, meaning that, that we're not driven by our sinful selves anymore because we are, by the grace of God, new creations in Christ. We have put on the new self, Paul tells us. We're now able to please God through faith-fueled obedience to his commands. But over and over and over again throughout this series, we've, we've also made it pretty clear that this isn't something that we're capable of doing all on our own. This, this obedience isn't inherent within us. It's something that can only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in the follower of Jesus. And if you remember back several weeks ago, uh, back when we were in the early part of chapter 7, Paul, Paul kind of let us in on his and our own desperate struggle with sin. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 7, Paul pulled back the curtain a little bit and he let us see that his struggle with sin is, is not a, a temporary one, but a lifelong one. That he's constantly fighting. In fact, the, the word that he uses is the word war. He's at war within himself. That's not a pretty picture, right? 
No one gets excited about going to war. At least I hope not. And so if you've been paying any attention at all, I, th- I think you've got to begin to at least ask the question, maybe out loud, maybe just internally, like how do I, Stephen Woodard, how do you know the difference between that lifelong struggle with my old sinful self and the far more common option in our world of just not being saved? Like how do we know the difference between those two? Where's the demarcation line? What assurance do we have that, that it's this one and not the, not the less, less joyful other one? How do we know that God's really working in us? What assurance do we have? And, Gos- and Paul, the great gospel logician, well, he's a few steps ahead of us, and so he's got a few things to say. You ready to look at verse 12 with me? Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so Paul says here that we are debtors. And that's a fun word in our culture, right? Debtors. How often do you use the word debtor? Used it this morning, right? You got up this morning and, go, and you, just, you just started thinking about the day and debt was the very first thing you thought about today. We are debtors. And normally when we use that phrase in our culture, we're talking about money, right? In fact, I, I, I Googled it this week. Whenever you want to know the definition of a word, the fastest way to do it is Google it, right? And so this week, I, I Googled the word debtor. This, this way of using the word debtor, of speaking of owing money, is so pervasive, so common in our culture, that Google doesn't even bother to expand down to other definitions. Somebody who owes money. That's what a debtor is. But there's more generic definitions of the word debtor. It doesn't have to include money. It can be anybody who's under a moral obligation to do something. And we actually see this sense of the word, this idea of the word, play out more in our culture with the phrase indebted. That subtle difference, right? Just, just, just the fact that you're in debt rather than the debtor, it changes the tone of the word, right? Where do you hear the word indebted used? It's never when you're talking about a legal demand. It's talking about a favor, right? I'm indebted to you or I owe you one, something like that. Somebody does something really nice for you or you do something really nice for them. Often that phrase is going to get thrown out, right? I owe you one. I'm indebted to you. But in that moment, we're not, we're not talking about a legal demand to pay back a bill. No one is writing up an invoice and you know, getting it notarized. None of that's happening. I mean, that's what you do when you go into debt, right? But when you're indebted, you're talking about something else. You're talking about a deep-seated gratitude that just kind of naturally flows out of people, right? That's what it means to be indebted. A gratitude that leads to real, actual change in the real, actual world. And so Paul here in verse, verse 12 says that we are debtors. Debtors to what? It's not to the flesh. We're not debtors to our old sinful selves anymore. The answer is actually found before it, a sentence before it in verse 11. 
I got it right here. It says, in, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, from, uh, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So who are we indebted to? The spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. We're indebted to the Holy Spirit. When someone is brought to salvation, they... The Bible teaches that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and there's the deep-seated gratitude that just kind of naturally flows out of them. A gratitude that really leads to real change, actual change in the real, actual world, right? No one ever got anywhere trying to live according to the flesh. Maybe talk, taught us that a couple of weeks ago, that our, that our old sinful selves cannot please God on our own. That, that's what he says in verse 8, right? But here, here in verse 12, Paul says that, that the result of that fleshly living that we try so desperately and vainly to walk in, it always ends up in the same place. It ends up in death. And isn't that a drum that, like, that Paul just kind of keeps beating, right? Like how many times over the course of this series have we said, this leads to death, this leads to death, this leads to death. What Do you think he... Why does Paul think that we need to hear that again? Could it be because we forget so easily? Could it be that we fall back into that rut far too easily? It's because we forget the truth. We're fickle in that way, right? But if, if trying to, to live in the flesh always leads to death, and I mean always, then, then what's the life-giving opposite? Because we don't want the death thing, we want the other thing, right? So what is the opposite then? Paul says, putting on the flesh, or putting the flesh to death, sorry, putting the flesh to death and living in the spirit, right? The Puritans used to call this idea mortification and vivification. Mortify means to kill, vivify means to bring to life. Mortification and vivification. And so you actively, like actually do something about it. You actively work to kill off the old sinful tendencies, all the old sinful habits, all the old sinful desires, and you simultaneously, at the very same time, you work to practice all the good stuff that you should be doing. You discipline yourself. That's what a disciple is, someone who's disciplined. You discipline yourself to pursue the holy and righteous stuff that's pleasing to God. And all the more theologically minded of those in the room are probably thinking to yourself right now, okay, but what's the difference between what Paul is talking about here and any other workspace religion? Like, what's the difference between that and like Mormonism or Islam? Where you have to achieve this or achieve that, put this thing away and pick up that thing in order for God to be pleased with you. What's the difference between those two things, right? Like Paul seems to be walking down a road that doesn't sound a lot like grace right now. What do we do with that? What's the difference between what Paul is talking about and all that workspace stuff outside of the church? Well, there's actually two massive differences. The first one is that we are seven and a half chapters into a letter where Paul has made it abundantly clear by this point that you and I are completely incapable of cleaning up anything. We're halfway through a letter, guys. That left to our own devices that... Not only are we unable to clean ourselves up, but we don't even want to clean ourselves up. We don't 
want God. Paul has argued ad nauseum by this point that, that until Jesus opens our eyes to see his beauty, we are actually repulsed by it. There's no such thing in the Bible as a man-made holiness. Holiness is a gift that is given by he who has holiness to spare. Jesus Christ the righteous. And so why would, why would groups like Mormons, and they, and they do, why, why would they point to verses like this one and argue that it's our job to clean ourselves up? Well, it's because bad things happen when you pull verses out of their larger context, right? Remember our summer series that we had? Verses can be twisted to say stuff that they're actually not saying when you isolate them from the larger whole. What Paul is talking about here, this, this lifelong mortification of the flesh, the killing off the flesh is post-salvific. It's a big word that means after saving. After salvation. You, it can only ever happen within the context of a heart that has been changed by Jesus, to want Jesus, to value Jesus, to pursue Jesus more than our sin. That's the only context that that can occur in. And so Paul is speaking to a bunch of people that that's apparently already happened to. But that's just the first massive difference between what Paul is saying in workspace religion. I told you there were two, right? So what's the second one? The second difference is the active agent of change in the very verse that he's talking about. Who does Paul say that we are being changed by in verse 13? For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if by the Spirit, not by your own power, not by your own resolve, not, not by your work ethic, you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Even after Jesus gives us new hearts, even after we are set free from the bondage of the law and have been married to a better spouse like we've been talking about over and over the last several weeks, you are still not the one bringing about your personal holiness. That's God's job, not yours. Do we play a role? Absolutely. Vivify, mortify all day long, baby. But God is the one who empowers. And God is the one who brings change. God is the one who brings fruit. And God is the one who will receive all the glory for it. God is. And Paul here in verses 12 and 13, Paul here says that one of the proofs, one of the proofs, the, one of the assurances that we have that our salvation is legit, that we're not just playing games here, that God's actually working in us is the slow but ever-present slog day to day to look more and more like our King Jesus. You want, you, want, you want proof that God's working in you? Did you wake up this morning begging for new mercies? I'll just give it one more day. I, I got one more day in me. I'm going to give it today. That doesn't come from you. Paul says, you want, you want proof that God's actually working in you? Are you fighting today? Are you trying today? Here's your proof. That's not the only proof that Paul offers up. Look at verse 14. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All right, so to the culture that Paul is writing to here, and, and by that I mean first century first century Near Eastern, right? That, that's the culture he's speaking into right now. The idea of sonship is a much deeper thing than just a family relationship, right? There's a lot more on the table than that. I mean, just go back even a handful of generations in our own, own culture, and you kind of begin to see this play out, right? Like, if you just go 100, 150 years ago, it would have been seen as a little bit scandalous for a son not to take up his father's trade, Right? Some of you may even have that buried back deep in your story somewhere, and there's tension about it. Have you ever asked why that's actually the case? We in the West, those of us who grew up in the United States and know nothing but Western culture, we have this incredibly, incredibly heightened sense of of just rugged individualism. It, we, we take pride in it. We, we value and celebrate the one who struck out the, on their own and blazed the trail, but most of the world for most of human history would look at us like we're idiots. What are you doing? You're walking away from something valuable. And we can, we can debate the cultures all day long, but Paul's speaking into one that doesn't look like ours. We need to pay attention to that. Sonship for Paul's audience, man, it carried the weight of faithful expectation. Faithful expectation. To be a son in that culture was to inherit way more than just money from your daddy when he died. You were the torchbearer. You were the torchbearer for identity and for family and for morality and for culture. To be a good son was to closely follow the lead of your father. And the inverse is also true. To fail to follow the lead of your father meant you weren't a good son. Maybe not a son at all. And here, here Paul says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You, you want proof that God is doing something in you, that what, what he's doing is really real, and that we're not just playing games here? Ask the question, are you following him? Are you following him? Because sons are the ones that follow their fathers. Do you follow Jesus? Like, like actually follow him. You have your answer. You want proof? Paul's got proof for you. Do you follow him? But look at verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption. Adoption is a relatively new thing in the scope of human history. Um, as best as we can tell, the earliest Jewish scholars and theologians, they never wrote about adoption. It wasn't even on their radar. We think that adoption was a Roman invention. It may have existed a little bit before then, but it kind of came into its stride during the Roman Empire. And the reason for that is because they needed to, to, they had a, a pretty hefty inheritance system and they needed to create pathways for that. And so adoption kind of became this thing that the world knew about during the Roman Empire, right? Uh, and so why is that important? 
Well, remember how I've been telling you over the course of this series that there's this one outside issue that Paul's going to have to weave into his gospel skyscraper as he goes throughout his argument? What was that issue? Gentile and Jewish Christian relationship, right? Jewish culture Christians and Gentile culture Christians thrown into the same room, there's conflict, right? And so Paul's going to address that issue. And so how does that issue come into play here? Paul takes an idea that didn't originate with the Jews and he holds it up and he celebrates it and he puts it on the biggest pedestal he can find and he says, this is what God does for you. What a comparison it is. One of my good friends in college was a guy named Josh King. Um, he's a pastor in Arkansas now. Several years ago, he and his wife, they went through the adoption process, and it was a really long adoption process. They adopted internationally, and when you do that, it's super expensive. And so in order to raise money for the adoption process, they sold T-shirts with uh, a, this logo on the front of it. It says, Adoption is the gospel with flesh and blood. And they are exactly right. They are exactly right. The theme of adoption, it's, it's littered all throughout Paul's New Testament letters. You can't teach the Pauline epistles without touching on adoption every once in a while. It's all over the place. And, and so as we've worked through those letters in our Wednesday night, like kids stuff, like I'm, I'm teaching through some of that stuff uh, with our third, fourth, and fifth graders right now on Wednesday nights. And so we've had to address the adoption thing. We've had to address that, what that is. And so the way we explain it to our third, fourth, and fifth graders is that adoption is when you take someone that you're not responsible for, and then you go out of your way to make yourself responsible for them. That's what adoption is. You don't have a connection to them. You're not obligated to them in any way, uh, but through an intentional, and hear me, a costly act, because adoption is costly all the time. There's never an uncostly way of going about this. Sometimes it's extremely costly, but through an intentional and costly act, you stand up and say, I'll be the one to take care of you. I'll be the one to love you. I'll be the one to provide for you. I'll be the one to protect you. I will go to extreme lengths to make you mine. That's adoption. And this is exactly what God does for us. This is exactly what God does for us. He doesn't owe you anything. He's not obligated to you. And back in chapter 5 of Romans, he calls us his enemies. But there was a point where he stood up and said, I'm going to make you mine. And through the intentional and costly act of sending his son to die on the cross. He said, I'm going to take care of this. I will be responsible. I will protect. I will provide. I will love. You will be mine. I don't care what it costs. Adoption is absolutely the gospel with flesh and blood. There's a real theological reason why the statistics tell us that Christian families adopt more often than non-Christian families do. There's an understanding of sacrificial love that just goes beyond what the world is used to. But man, I beg that God will raise up millions of other families to say yes to that option. You think it might preach the gospel in a real tangible way to people who need to see flesh and blood examples? And Paul says here, 
in verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. That those who belong to Jesus, that we're, not, we're not slaves, we're not, we're, we're not some outside servant that comes in once in a while to the house. We are adopted sons and daughters who can now address God as Abba, Father. In other words, we walk in relationship with our God. He's not simply a faraway king on a faraway throne who did that nice thing for us once upon a time. He is the good Father who is near to those he tenderly cares for. You want proof that he's working in you? You want to know if this is really real? Ask yourself this question this morning. How do you see him? How do you see him? Do you see him as some cruel slave master heaping demand upon demand on you? Or do you see him as he actually is and as he reveals himself to be? Your posture towards God can, it doesn't always, but it can serve as an indicator of what's really going on in your heart. You want proof? How do you see him this morning? Is he far away or has he come near? Just as an, as an aside here, because pastors sometimes need to undo bad Bible teaching. It's part of the job. That phrase, Abba, there, um, usually gets treated as some kind of incredibly playful, endearing title like Daddy would be for us. Uh, there's probably nobody in this room who hasn't heard it taught that way, myself included. The only problem with that is that like no one on the planet argued that until like 1971. So like just as a general rule, if your doctrinal stance originated in the 1970s, just ignore it. It's just, just wise counsel. Abba is an Aramaic word for father, and we think, we're not 100% sure, but we think it was the term that was used for your own personal father rather than somebody else's generic father, right? You can call someone a father without them being your father, and so when you were talking to your father, you would use the word Abba. That's what we think was going on, but to take the next steps and say that it's informal or to hit the accelerator and just go all the way to just saying it's the same thing as daddy kind of tends to ignore the fact that children in that culture didn't really talk to their fathers like that in those days would have been seen as highly disrespectful. <laughs> Probably not the pathway that Jesus wants to walk them down, right? So why then has everybody in the room probably heard it taught that Abba, Abba means daddy dozens of times? Because like a lot of things in this world, the things that we want to be true spread farther and faster than things that actually are true. Welcome to the world we live in, right? That's why we got to check everything we see in the Bible like the Bereans did. So if Abba, I mean, isn't this playful daddy thing, then is it still special? I mean, did we just, did we just lose all the punch? No, it's still 100% special. When Jesus uses the word Abba for the first time in Mark 16, and then when Paul picks it up here, and then later on in Galatians 4, um, they're, they're speaking into a religious culture that didn't know what to do with it. The idea of calling God your father was an alien idea to the culture, the religious culture they were speaking to. They were familiar with God as Lord. They were familiar with God as king. They knew how to relate to him as provider and king and all of these other things. But the idea that God could be personable and knowable is massive. The emphasis here is not on informality. It's on personability. We get to know God. And that is huge. 
because of the mediating work of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross to pay the debt for the sins that we owe, there's no longer any need for a go-between. We don't need someone to go up on the mountain and hear from God and then report back to us like Moses did. We don't need somebody to go into the tent, go behind the curtain and offer the sacrifice that we can't see, hoping that God will accept it for us through them. We get God himself. We're talking about assurances though this morning, right? How can we be certain? How can we, you and I, my, Stephen Woodard, how can Stephen Woodard be certain that God is really working in me? Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do we know? Well, another way is that the indwelling spirit within us just tells us so. This is that I know that I know that I know that you sometimes hear Christians talking about. And if you're not a Christian, that probably drives you crazy. (laughs) I know that I know that I know. We are God's children. And if God's children, then we're heirs, not just any old heir, co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to him belongs to us. There's no such thing as a second-class member of God's family. There's no, there's no varsity squad getting all the attention with the JV team playing on Thursday nights. There's no second-class member of God's family. Follower of Jesus, every single promise and resource of the Father is freely and joyfully on the table for you. All of them. All of them. They are yours by right because the cosmic king loves you and has adopted you as his very own. It is part of your inheritance. But. Also remember who Jesus came to be. We inherit a family identity, but that identity is actually bigger than just God's promises. Jesus came to serve. In another letter, the book of Philippians, Paul tells us there that that Jesus took on the form of, of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross, right? Jesus came to willingly and joyfully suffer, and that's the word, suffer for the sake of a better reward. And so Paul says here in verse 17 that if you want to claim your birthright, if you, if you want to claim your family identity, you want, you want proof that you belong to God and you're a part of God's family, that you're one of the adopted sons and daughters of the king, you need to claim the whole identity and not just, not just that one part. The family identity is that we're also co-heirs with Christ and we share in his suffering. You want assurance that God is really working? That this isn't some just religious game with no stakes involved? Ask the question, do you share in Jesus' suffering this morning? Does the world that you live in kind of kick it out of you every once in a while? For the sake of following Jesus. It's no accident. It's divinely inspired. 
God's doing something in that moment to show you that you walk with Jesus. How do we know the difference between the lifelong struggle with our old sinful selves and the far more common option in our world of just not being saved? Because over and over and over and over again, follower of Jesus, God gives us assurance after assurance that he is working. We can look at these, these list of things laid out for us this morning, we, and, and man, we, should, we should breathe more easily, Right? That's what the assurances are for. To it's okay, breathe. Everything's all right. He's he's got it. He loves you enough to give you example after example that he does. And so, if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus. Your response to God's word is to to let loose of some things. To let loose of some things like. To, to see all these assurances and just keep wringing your hands, it's kind of proof that you don't believe what he says to you. So quit wringing your hands and breathe. He's got it. But listen, there's also that other possibility of just not being saved. It is more common in this world. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, not a single one of those things applies to me. Your response to God and his word this morning is not to breathe more easily. It's, it's not a, an easy breath. It's a repentant breath. That's your response. Your response is to meet Jesus today. You, you do that by repenting of sin and calling on Jesus as Lord through faith. Faith is just a biblical word for trust. Trust that, he's, that he is who he says he is and that he's done exactly what he said he would do. Jesus, God himself, he died on the cross to pay penalty for your sin. And he was raised from the dead as a proof of his perfect righteousness. And so now he calls everyone, everyone to repent and come to him. You can do that this morning. I hope you will. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if you would like somebody to walk you through what that next step looks like. You don't need my help, but if you want my help, I'm here. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans chapter 8. I know my own heart well enough to know that I, I struggle sometimes. Sometimes I'm scared of the questions that well up in me. I look around and things don't work like I hope and I'm not as disciplined as I would like to be. And Sometimes you seem silent. And just to be honest, there's sometimes I wonder, is all this real? I'm really walking the way I should here. But in your goodness and in your faithfulness and in your great love for those who you owe nothing to, you press in. You give us these little assurances that, that you're here and that you're moving. So even on the dark day, I can know that I know that I know. 
God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you awaken eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear and hearts to know this morning? You save people today. And there's got to be somebody who's, who's been playing the Christian game their whole life and none of those things seem to apply to them. Would you change eternities today? Would you save new people? Would your name be glorified because of it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.